All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles. Hope you have one. If you don't, there's one you can borrow in the chair in front of you. And if there isn't one there, you can just take the Bible of the person sitting next to you. All right. Let's open them to James chapter 4 as we continue looking at the book of James together. And if you're new with us here at Calvary, first we welcome you. And just let you know that on Sunday mornings, like Wednesday nights, we open up a book of the Bible. We start at verse 1, chapter 1, and we go all the way through. Usually in one Sunday, it takes about nine and a half hours. Uh, you'll be out by six this afternoon. So We're in James chapter 4 today, verses 11 and 12. And so let's read them, and then we'll look at them. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but of a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge one another? I don't think I have to make much of an argument that the tongue, speech, has caused quite a few problems throughout world history. We must be very careful about what we say as believers in Jesus Christ. We must be careful that we don't say things out of emotion, at a moment of a knee-jerk reaction, But we must think before we speak, and if I may add to that, I believe we must think biblically before we speak. James says a lot about the tongue. He starts in James chapter 1, verse 26. It should be on the screen behind me. If anyone amongst you thinks he is religious and does not bridle or control his tongue, but deceives his own heart, This one's religion is useless. What he's saying here, if I may summarize, is that if you believe that you are a Christian and you are unable to control your tongue, then your Christianity that you embrace is useless. That's what he's saying here. That's a big statement, isn't it? He went on later to say in James chapter 3, verse 6, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, or of sin, that's what that word means. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Aren't you glad that you came for an encouraging, upbeat message today? (laughs) Strong words. Strong words. Why was James so adamant, 54, and my voice is still cracking, why was James so adamant about what we say as believers? James is the one of, if not the oldest, New Testament book. Christianity was new to the scene. Most believe that James was written around 60 A.D., Of course, Jesus died and ascended in 33 A.D. So just under 30 years have passed, and James now, the half-brother of Jesus, of course, uh, a son of Mary and Joseph, but of course, Jesus' father was God the Father. James was leading the church there in Jerusalem, and he wrote this letter to Christians that were living outside of Israel at that time, who were Jews first and then became Christians. And that was a transition in and of itself. That was a very difficult occurrence because Christians were now being persecuted for their faith. And as they were abroad, they were called the 12 tribes scattered, or in other places more technically, they were called the dispersa or the diaspora. These displaced Jewish people who had now become Christians were just getting their feet underneath them and they were learning what Christianity was all about. Again, Christianity was in its infancy at that time. 
And so there was a lot of concern. How do I know that I'm actually a believer? How do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know if I'm saved? For the Jewish people had operated under, of course, the covenant of Moses, the Old Testament, uh, the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch in Greek. But now the new covenant that Jesus Christ established there in the upper room with his disciples was now taking effect. This covenant was the new agreement that God would uh, honor and, and uh, interact with his people in and through. The new covenant, by grace through faith. So they were asking themselves the question, how can I know? And James says that the dissension that's amongst you shouldn't be. Your mouth, your tongue is getting you in trouble. And he was very adamant about it from the very beginning of the letter. And he concludes a, this section, chapters 3 and 4, up until this moment by saying, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. But this did not originate with James. Everything that the apostles did after the ascension of Jesus Christ was based upon, everything that they taught was based upon what Jesus taught in the Gospels. So let me give you what I believe is the foundation of the understanding of what James is trying to convey here to his recipients. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus clearly showed us why what we say is so important. It is because what we say is an indication of what is in our hearts. It helps identify us as a tree of good fruit or a tree of bad fruit. And I believe James is now giving a practical application for what Jesus was uh, indicating here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. Now, Jesus is engaged with the religious leaders. They are in contention once again, which was a common occurrence in the Gospels during Christ's first time here on this earth. Notice what Jesus says in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit, meaning you can tell what kind of tree it is by its fruit. Now, I'm not agricultural. I don't have any infinity for plants. I do not have a green thumb. That's why we have plastic plants here in the church, and even they suffer under my care. But of course, with the agrarian culture that they had, this was a common occurrence. I do know enough that when I'm in a grove, I can tell the difference between an apple tree and an orange tree. I do have that level of intelligence when it comes to botany. However, though, it also tells me what kind of tree it actually is. And Jesus said, if the tree bears good fruit, you know the tree is good. If the tree bears bad fruit, you know the tree is bad. He was talking about the condition of the heart of the individual, displayed in their actions, thoughts, and words. He goes on then to say, brood of vipers. Jesus did not hear that it was improper to be politically correct. He told them as it were. How can you, being evil, speaking to the religious leaders, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasures of his heart, brings forth good things. An evil man, out of the evil treasures, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And what Jesus is saying is that we'll know where your heart is by what you say. 
And this is where James then continues and picks up from what Jesus had taught and gives us warning that speaking evil of one another, slandering one another, indicates a heart problem with us that needs to be corrected. And James wanted these new believers to understand that what they see happening amongst them demonstrates that their hearts are not right with the Lord. So in verse 11 of James, he says, Now do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. James is talking about slander. Again, we are all too accustomed to slander today, aren't we? Individuals verbally uh, destroying another, often to make themselves look better. It is getting harder and harder to find civil discourse between two people, especially in the arena of politics, isn't it? And because we have learned how to disagree civilly and disagree with integrity, we often, as a nation, resort to slander. It is to be expected amongst people who say that they do not believe in God, but when slander is found amongst people who do believe in God, that's a problem. We as individuals should never look to slander our brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Slander is speaking of one and for the sole purpose of damaging a person's reputation. D.L. Moody said slander has been called tongue murderer. Or a slanderer has been called a tongue murderer. When he uses the word evil here, the word evil here can represent something that is true, that is used in a slanderous way, or something that is false and used in a slanderous way, in a way to destroy the reputation of another person. And you may say, well, how can something true be slanderous? Well, maybe you know something about someone. Maybe someone has personally confided in you concerning a trouble, a weakness, or a failure within their own life. And you take that bit of information and you use it improperly and begin to slander that person for the sake of destroying their reputation. So something true can be used in a slanderous way often. And something false can also be used in a manner that destroys the reputation of a person. We see slander being used to tear one down, to build oneself up. It's a shame, but unfortunately it's all too common. This should not be in the body of Christ. Because again, the early Christians saw that what proceeded from the mouth was a mere representation of what was in the heart. And if the world looks upon the church, looks upon our church, and sees a group of people riff with dissension, then what good are we to them? They can experience that in the world. Why would they come into the church? There is nothing more damaging than hearing from someone who is supposed to love you. Slander from them about you. I have talked to so many over the years who still remember words that were used to hurt and abuse them from the mouths of individuals who were supposed to have loved them. It's amazing how much a person can overcome in their life, in their life of personal experiences. But it's amazing how often those words that we hear, a child from a parent, a spouse, a husband from a wife, 
wife from a husband, can stick with us for a very, very long time. We must be very careful in what we say and how we say it and when we say it. James says these things ought not to be. He says by slandering a person to defraud them or defame them, you have become a judge of your brethren. You have put yourself in a place of superiority over them. By you taking this tactic, you are saying that you are superior spiritually to them. And James had a problem with that. James had a real problem with that. Because he realized that all of us were accountable to our Savior, to our Lord. And that we should not judge one another. When he talks about judging, he is talking about, again, using a character flaw, using a uh, made-up story of an individual in the way of, of course, bringing them down, uh, destroying their reputation, their character, their integrity. We often as Christians don't realize that the Bible does call us to judge in the sense of knowing right from wrong. The Bible instructs us in other places that it is proper and appropriate for us to approach a brother and sister who is in sin and lovingly bring it to their attention and lovingly pray for their repentance. But if I were to go around and to say and to list each one of your failures without the desire of restoration without the desire of repentance, then I would simply be slandering you amongst others. James was very concerned about this. James didn't believe that this was appropriate for Christians. We need to understand that we must be very careful in what we say about one another. But it doesn't mean that we should shy away from our biblical responsibilities. I have often been approached by congregation members who say, Oh, I know that so-and-so is, in, is doing something that they shouldn't, and I think that you need to address it. Oh, okay. Let me get right on that. And they then would leave my office and say, Okay, so when will you do it? And I said, well, let, let me pray about it. What do you need to pray about? It is clear that they are in sin. Well, let's talk about your sin first. But when these things are brought to me, I often take them to my boss. I take them to dad. And I say, Lord, you know these are your children. If they're involved in something they shouldn't be, would you show them and convict them yourself? Because even though I'm willing to address an issue, I find that dad handles it much better than I do. And I will tell you that the vast majority of times by praying about it first, I have found that God deals with it. And it's not that I'm looking to get out of it, but I'm looking to get out of it. But I know when he does it, he does it in righteousness, he does it in mercy, he does it in justice. And he does it in love. James wanted the church to be a peak of heaven here on earth. He wanted Christians to, to live as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. He wanted them to represent Jesus properly to the world around them. And we cannot do so if we place ourselves in spiritual superiority over one another by slandering them and judging them in a way that's inappropriate. And James says this should not be. But then he says something very interesting here. In verse 11 still, he says, as judges, uh, and judges his brother speaks evil of the law, and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, what does that mean? Well, your first inclination would be to believe that he's referring to the law of Moses. Now, again, these are Jewish individuals who have become Christians. And their whole lives up and through their Judaism was governed by the Mosaic law. So it would be easy to assume that James is just referring to the Mosaic law, but you'd be wrong. Because earlier on in the book of James, he introduced a new law that governs all of us as Christians. A law that is vastly superior to that of the law of Moses. A law that has been handed down by Jesus himself that replaced the entire law of the Old Testament. And of course, I'm referring to the royal law, as James calls it. The law that is defined by the second of the greatest commandments, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. But preceding that, Jesus pulls back into Leviticus 19.18 and says when he was asked by the religious leaders in an attempt to try to trap him and to discredit him amongst the people, asking him which is the superior law of the Ten Commandments, Jesus then, of course, in his majesty and in his wisdom, said the greatest law of all is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind and strength. This is the greatest commandment. And then he said, let me add another. He said, now go and love one another. I'm sorry, he said, now the second is just as important, love your neighbor as yourself. This was the new law that was to govern the hearts and the minds of those who followed Jesus Christ. As one wrote, he said, Someone has suggested that there are three questions that we should answer before indulging in any criticism of others. Number one, we should ask ourselves, what good does it do your brethren? Number two, what good does it do yourself? And number three, what glory for God is in it? Everything that we do should be governed by this new royal law of love. Paul the Apostle, in writing to the Corinthian church, said, For there are three, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I don't care if we receive any of the gifts of God as long as we love one another. That is the superior gift. Now, I want you to understand fully. I don't think the love of God can be talked about enough. But we today must define what love is. Our world is trying to define it in a very specific way. That if I were to say that I love another person, it means that I should accept everything about that person and affirm everything about that person's life and activity. But is that what God really meant? Is that what God really desired amongst his people concerning their love for one another? Or did he have something vastly superior in mind? We begin in John's Gospel should be on the screen behind us. John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The demonstration of the type of love that God is looking for amongst us was exampled for us in God giving his only begotten Son on behalf of the world. He loved the world that he gave his son. That is the action that defines the word love for us. The word is sacrificial. The word is unconditional. It is a love in a way that we have never experienced before. Fun fact for you. When Jesus walked amongst his disciples in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, 
The Greek language dominated the culture. It was the primary language there, even in Jerusalem. Though there was Hebrew spoke alongside of it, some Aramaic spoke alongside of it, the predominant language was Greek. And the Greeks had several different words for love. They had the word eros, which means an exotic type of love. They had the word uh, phileo, which is a friendship type of love. There was a word called storge, which meant a love for an inanimate object or a food of some sort. You know, I love this food. And none of those words worked for Jesus. Because none of them encapsulated the type of love that he was looking for from those who follow him. So there was this obscure word in the Greek language that Jesus knew of and began to define not through oration, not through verbal teaching, but by his actions. And he began to use this word throughout his ministry. The disciples picked up on it. They used it throughout their ministries. It was the word agape. Now, in the Greek word language, that word wasn't used all that often. It was in their vocabulary, but it really wasn't used very often. And it was obscure. And the definition to it was ambiguous. So Jesus took that word and defined it by his actions. And it showed initially that the word agape was a selfless type of a love, but he expanded on that by showing it sacrificial, unconditional. Paul the Apostle had such a difficult time bringing this word into the knowledge of his recipients in his letter that he wrote 1 Corinthians 13 to help them understand what the Christians meant by the word agape. And I encourage you to read it when you have a moment. Love is kind. Love is patient. So when Jesus then told his disciples in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, And Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Now we are starting to see that this agape love is prominent in his thinking because the word agape is used there in our text in the Greek. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments hang the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament. Over 600 laws in the Old Testament are all fulfilled in these two. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was preparing to depart, he told his disciples in John 13, verses 34 to 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, All will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is saying that this is the cornerstone characteristic of one who is truly a Christian. Is their love for God and for one another. Jesus said that if you love each other in this way, the world will look upon you and see and know that you are truly my disciples. This is why this has become the royal law. This is why it superseded the law of Moses. And this love cannot be demonstrated if we are slandering everyone, everyone if we are slandering each other, if we are judging one another inappropriately. The world cannot see this love and therefore does not know that we are truly His. But Jesus went on further. In John 14, verse 15, He said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Which commandments is He referring to? The ones we just mentioned. 
He goes on a little later in John 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. He then went on in John 15, in verses 12 through 17. He said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. For you did not choose me, but I have chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That wherever uh, you ask the, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you that you love one another. You get the theme here? This is huge. Now, this love cannot be counterfeited. We cannot love in this way naturally. <clears throat> it is a work of the Holy Spirit within us. It is indication that a new birth in Jesus Christ has taken place. It shows and demonstrates for Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said, for the fruit of the Spirit, and he says, is love. And many believe that the words that then precede that word love are all descriptive of the word love itself. This is why when we love one another in this manner, God can demonstrate himself, manifest himself to the world. Because it's a work of the Spirit within us. And if we slander one another, that will not be able to be witnessed amongst the world. John concluded, if you would read with me, in 1 John chapter 4. <clears throat> now, people, when they read the New Testament, we have the four Gospels, the narrative from four different perspectives of the life and teachings of Jesus everything that he said and done. The book of Acts gives us an understanding of what happened after Jesus Christ ascended. Paul's epistles, the, uh, he wrote to those Gentile Christians around the world who didn't have the benefit of the background knowledge of Judaism and had to explain things in more thorough detail to those Gentile Christians like ourselves who may not be familiar with all the tenets and ideas of, of Judaism. But James and John and Peter and Jude helped us even further understand not only the teachings of Jesus, which of course Paul did also, but they also wrapped within their writings an understanding of Judaism to show you how Christianity is the natural conclusion to the Jewish faith. And many people had a very difficult time with John 15. Historians tell us that. John 15 was very confusing to early Christians. So John wrote a follow-up, an explanation of the Gospel of John chapter 15, and that was 1 John. And one of the things that he highlights is the understanding of how love demonstrates our new birth, our new life in Jesus Christ, and confirms that we are truly saved. So look with me in 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 7. He makes it abundantly clear. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now again, this word, agape, is used. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, here's the first thing I want you to notice. Our world wants to tell us that love is a mere chemical reaction within our brain. That when we believe that we love someone, they believe that our brain is just chemically reacting in a way to show and to demonstrate that we feel differently about this person than that person. Now that may be true to a small extent, and I certainly am not denying the chemical makeup of the human brain. But what I am saying is that if we remain in the world of naturalism, that is the belief that nothing supernatural exists, then we exclude the idea that love itself did not originate with man, but originated with God. And it didn't only originate with God, it is a direct characteristic of God. God is love, is what John says. He says it twice in this chapter. So if we are truly to understand what love is, it is by necessity that we know who God is. Does that make sense? No? Do you just want to have coffee now? It's so important that we see this, that as believers... When we talk about love, and we know that we use this word so loosely in our culture today, don't we? And we fall in and out of love. One day the chemicals are moving and grooving and the next minute they're gone, right? But see, that's not true with God. For loving God is not a chemical reaction, it's an actual component of His character. Now, theologically, the immutability of God tells me that his characteristics never change, for he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let us understand that when we talk about love, it must begin first and foremost with our understanding of who God is. When I read the Bible, I am not simply reading it to know about God, I am reading it to know God. Because that's where all theology begins. That's where all our practices begin. It begins in the characteristics of God. So then he goes on and continues. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God had sent his only begotten son. This is how we sh- he showed it. <coughs> this is how he demonstrated it. Into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiations. Big word there. It means payment. It means atonement. Uh, It means uh, justifying the individual who has sinned before God. And he he continues and he says, Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he goes on to say, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide, that is, continue in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed that love that God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. This is a big deal. This is what James is saying. This constitutes the royal law. This is where it originated. This is how it's been passed down. This is how it's been demonstrated. 
So before we go to criticize anyone else, I think we should first stop and ask ourselves four questions. Have I dealt with my sin? Do I, number two, do I expect other people to show me grace when it comes to my shortcomings? And therefore I'm obligated to show grace to those who also have shortcomings. Have I been found guilty for the very failure that we see in others? That's something that I'll never cease to be amazed by. Why is it that the sins that we commit ourselves always look worse on somebody else? Oh, can you, can you commit? I can't believe she would do that. I know I struggle with it, but my goodness. Did you see her? Holy cow. Pastor, you've got to talk to this one. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. The reason it's, we're so offended is because it reminds us of our own personal shortcomings. If we ourselves realize that we need grace and mercy from God each and every day, how is it that we are not willing to extend that grace and mercy to others? Like we have said many times, we are all works in progress here in this church. God is working in us. He hasn't finished yet. And so we need to be patient with one another as God completes the work that He started. I love what Warren Worsby wrote. We never know all the facts in a case, do we? We certainly never know the motives that are at work in men's hearts. To speak evil of a brother and to judge a brother on the basis of partial evidence and probably unkind motives is to sin against him and against God himself. In verse 12 of James, turn there with me. We are reminded that there is one lawgiver, and of course he is speaking of Jesus himself, who is able to save and to destroy. And therefore, who are you to judge another? One of the Ten Commandments, of course, is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And when we hear the word witness, we immediately apply this to the scenario of bearing false witness in a court of law. That's true, and that is one aspect of its application. But bearing false witness is saying anything false about another person to another person. The psalmist said, when he wrote about the one who could enter in to the temple of God, to the tabernacle of God, that it would not be one who backbites with his tongue, nor does evil in his, to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. Psalm 15, read it when you can. We should not approach God in that way. The Proverbs Solomon wrote to us, and he said in chapter 10, verse 18, Whoever hides hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. In the Old Testament, when God said to David, you shall be king, Saul at that time was king, and Saul was, of course, trying to hold on to the crown as long as he possibly could. And so what Saul decided to do was to slander David everywhere he went. To the people, to the families, to the temple, to the priests. Saul made it his mission to discredit David from becoming king to retain the crown himself. In Psalm 31, verse 9, David writes about this and how he feels about being slandered. Now, I am always from the position we can't control what others do, but we certainly can control what we do. So in this response, in this moment that David has with God, there are two vital lessons that we can learn 
to help us to respond when we are slandered by others. We often cannot defend ourselves when it occurs. And now with the advent of social media, of course, we often see that um, arguments are often waged amongst people through social media to be captured in time forever. So what do you do when someone slanders you? What was David to do? David couldn't retaliate. David couldn't kill Saul. David knew that God had called him to be God. So what did David do? Well, here's what he did. In Psalm 31, verses 9 through 14, David writes, he says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eyes waste away with grief, yes, my soul and my body. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away and I am reproached among all my enemies. But especially among my neighbors. And I am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of my mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side of me. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. When we are slandered, the first thing I would encourage you to do is to take your heart before God and as David prayed, say, Lord, is there any wicked way within me? Have I done something that has warranted this criticism, even though this criticism was done in an inappropriate manner? But once you do that, God does not ask you to run around to defend yourself once you have taken your heart to God. The second step is to trust in the Lord. Lord, you said I would be king, David said in his heart. I trust you, therefore, Lord. I trust you. Over the years, of course, I've experienced this where people have said things that were frankly just untrue. And it'd be easy to try to run around and try to defend yourself and try to... uh, you know, justify yourself amongst them, to bring everybody in for a meeting and so forth. But because I knew the things weren't true, and it was nothing appalling, it was just one of those occasions where somebody was angry. It's amazing that every time people get angry at God, they get angry at me. It's just like, just go to dad, you know. But when I would share it with my pastor, he would always say, just trust in the Lord. Let the Lord be your defense. And every single time, God has worked it out. I didn't have to run around and justify myself. Of course, we all should be approachable. And even when someone criticizes us and they do it in an inappropriate way, if there is a kernel of truth to it, let us be honest and with integrity, apologize for it, try to rectify it. But if it is false slander, trust the Lord to defend you. And that's what David did. And by doing so, God rose him up. And David became king. Jesus Christ was perfect. He loved perfectly. He was slandered continuously. And he allowed God the Father to raise him up. He did not try to defend himself. He did not try to argue with people. He said things as they were, and he brought out the issues that were pertinent. But when he was slandered unjustly, he absolutely allowed his Father to defend him. And so should we. 
One wrote, he said, to silence slander, we must regularly examine our attitude and our actions towards others. Do we build people up or tear them down? When we are ready to criticize someone, we ought to remember God's law of love and say something good instead. Saying something beneficial to others will cure us from finding fault and increase our ability to obey God's law of love. For those immersed in a culture that is, thrives on criticism and slander, Jesus set a standard to guide each of us. He says, I tell you, forgive your brother, not seven times, but 70 times. One practical approach to silencing a slandering habit is to practice making seven positive, encouraging statements for every critical one that we make. If we are going to submit ourselves, here is a prayer that we can use to pray and ask God to submit ourselves to the royal law of love. Number one, have I given myself the benefit of the doubt but refused to do it to my brother or my sister? In your prayer and submitting yourself to the royal law, Ask yourself, have I made excuses for my shortcomings, but remained intolerant of others? And number three, have I judged my brothers and sisters according to the letter of the law while expecting grace for myself? If we are going to be impactful for Jesus, people need to see the love of God amongst us, and they will not and cannot see it if we are tearing each other apart with slander. This was what James was addressing when he wrote, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you? to judge one another. Amen.